Welcome back to episode 28 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the podcast where we go along with our chronological Bible reading plan. We discuss the next week's readings, answer any questions that you have, and talk about the most interesting bits from what's coming up. We want to let you know that we will not be recording next week. So next week will be our first week off of the podcast. The reason for that is a couple of fold. Um, We will be the fourth week in Psalms, and we feel like you hearing our thoughts about the Psalms for three weeks is probably enough. Also, it is a holiday week, and so both of our schedules are a little crazy. Getting together to record would be, I think, pretty difficult. So there will be no podcast next week, but that is not a sign that the podcast is slowing down or stopping. It is just one week we are taking off. Well, next week's readings, uh, we have a few of the chapters right at the end of Proverbs that are, I think, they're placed in this point in the chronological reading plan because we have no idea who Agor and King Lemuel are, no idea whether they're Gentiles or not, or where they go in the history, and so I think it's just kind of like best guess, so we'll just put them here. Uh, And they're both intricate kind of units on their own. You know, I think that we can definitely see, like I can understand why they're at the end of Proverbs. I think they both kind of serve as, is not quite like summary statements, but I think you see a lot of the themes that Proverbs has been uh, uh, developing kind of repeated and kind of stated again in, in the Saints of Agor. I think especially with the the woman of valor in Proverbs 31, you know, that is a, I mean, it's good for, I think the ways that we've, the church has used it in discipleship, but I think, again, just in terms of the text, I mean, I think it's Lady Wisdom, Lady Wisdom almost incarnating in the life of the lives of wise women, you know, throughout Israel. And that's, that's kind of what Lemuel's mother is, is, uh, trying to kind of make him see, I think, but, and then also whoever else is reading or being exposed to this of like that wisdom, uh, a life lived according to the wisdom that Proverbs has been expounding looks like this. And that, well, I don't want to get into the, (laughs) my mind was going off into like a man-woman thing, and I don't want to do that, because I don't think that's, anyway. Wisdom is is pictured as a woman earlier in the book, you know, famously so. And so I think that the, uh, yeah, just the the way that those images are are developed and and kind of summarized upon, you know, the the woman of valor at the end, I think is, is very powerful and and certainly worth meditating on and thinking about. And then once you've done that, to start the book over again, <laughs> you know, and, and you can definitely, I think, as well tell that Proverbs was was uh, meant to be read, you know, over and over, or at least heard, you know, over and over as you kind of reach these ending things. And then it, it, it points you back, it loops you back. Uh, we have a number of psalms mostly composed by people called the Sons of Korah. Uh, and Korah was a Levite, uh, one of the kind of, there were a couple sort of Levitical worship teams uh, that it seems in, with different lineages between Asaph and Korah and maybe a few others that were responsible for worship at the temple. Chronicles uh, really highlights these kind of, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Ancestral, I guess, worship teams. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know what else to call them, you know, but but the, the groups of Levites who, who were in charge of the musical instruments, who were in charge of the choirs. Uh, so the Sons of Korah seem to be some of these, and, and so their songs are uh, preserved for us. Not all together in the Book of Psalms, which, I mean, it's interesting 
compositional question why they're scattered, but it just is what it is. You know, I don't know why. It just is what it is. Um, and so we, uh, yeah, we find those in next week's readings as well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a line in Numbers, the Numbers 26, that the, the children of Korah did not die. And so the sons of Korah, there's some question, are they actually the biological children of Korah? Or are they descendants of Korah? Um, I think that's an interesting bit because that would age or date the Psalms as being older than the ones that are done by David. We talked about this a few weeks ago with uh, Pastor Adam Kipp, but Proverbs 26, 3 and 4 famously has two contradictory Proverbs right next to each other. So the first one says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. And then the next one says, answer a fool according to his folly. And I mean, I'd love to hear you just talk about why that's the way it is a little bit. Because when we talk about the Bible, the whole thing being about wisdom, you know, I think that these two verses just kind of highlight that idea. And it's certainly if you just want to zero in on Proverbs itself, you know, Proverbs, they are just super duper not commands or promises, right? So it's not, you must do this so that this will happen. And they're not, if you do this, then this will happen. Neither of those things are, are what these things are. And so, you know, I think that, that Proverbs throughout the whole world, right? I mean, every culture has proverb traditions and histories and, and they're usually decentralized. So like they emerge just from local life, you know, and they're commonsensical, right? trying to think of american proverbs uh what's a good american proverb (laughs) that's not biblical in origin the early bird gets the worm worm, you know the early bird gets the worm and it's like all right so like no one you know that didn't come from some hot well who knows ben franklin probably invented it but you know that that just emerged because of people's observations and that it's just true generally speaking you know the first one to do something gets the credit for it you know famous inventors explorers the first one up in the morning has the best chance of accomplishing his goals you know and and so you just see that now is that a promise is that a command no it's just kind of common wisdom is what we would call it now with the biblical proverbs that's a little different because uh they have been collected into holy scripture and so i think that there's a a uh Somehow that, that Yahweh has kind of stamped his approval on these, you know, proverbs more than, you know, other people's proverbs, even if they might reflect um, kind of local observed wisdom uh, in the same way that these do. You know, and I think that that's part of how we can understand that that proverbs, our b- biblical book of proverbs has incorporated material from Egypt. And again, if Agor and Lemuel and everybody are not Israelites, right, I mean, I think that that helps us understand that. It's like, yeah, there's wisdom kind of bubbles up out of the ground by God's common grace, you know, and and you can find it anywhere in the world. And so I think that as the royal archivists or whomever are collecting all of these proverbs, I think it makes sense that you're going to get some that are contradictory because the world is complicated and sometimes you need to do something, but then other times you shouldn't do that thing. Um, and so I think that it's no accident that they're right next to each other. Again, ancient people weren't fools. Like they also knew that these two verses were contradictory. It's not a surprise to anyone because sometimes you should answer a fool according to his folly, but then other times you shouldn't. And, you know, I think that we, 
it's worth it's worth I think really pressing into this because we often come to the Bible with the assumption that what it's for is to give us clear-cut instructions about what to do. And this would certainly be a time where it does not. And that might bother some of us, but I think that that is the whole point of wisdom literature is to say you're an adult. Here's the wisdom. Figure it out. <laughs> Like the whole model of like, we don't know what to do until God tells us. It's like, I mean, there is there is some truth to that. But, you know, I think that especially when you when you zero in on like the very specific nitty gritty decisions we have to make day to day. No, the Bible does not directly speak to most of those things, you know. And so does that mean that we shouldn't read the Bible looking for wisdom? No, of course not. But. But that's exactly what we'll get. Not instructions necessarily, but just wisdom growing in us, you know, by the Holy Spirit so that we're able to make wise and, and just and righteous decisions and whether we should answer the fool according to his folly or whatever it may be that we're facing. So Proverbs 28.8 says this, Whoever increases wealth by taking interest or profit from the poor amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. I mean, it sounds like it's saying that whoever spends their life trying to gain wealth is actually going to be giving that wealth to someone who is good to the poor. That doesn't that doesn't seem to follow logically, and so I'm I'd be curious for any input on that. Yeah, I, I think there's kind of some parallel proverbs or parallel sayings in Ecclesiastes, just this idea of like, you know. Why try and amass a fortune when you can't control what your descendants are going to do with it? They might be idiots. I mean, this is a little different emphasis than here in Proverbs, but I think it's kind of a similar, it could be sort of a similar idea um, that, you know, yeah, you don't know what your descendants are going to do. And so uh, your whole life shouldn't be dedicated to just amassing wealth and, and interest and profit. And it does, the proverb itself doesn't say this, but I think that the, the subtext here is that I think there is also a divine justice idea that like if you are multiplying wealth by interest and profit, that might be through the uh, detriment of the poor. And so if you are doing that and causing injustice, God will make it so that your wealth is going to be redistributed to the poor people that you originally took it from. Um, and I think that we also see that, you know, throughout the, the wisdom literature as well. And it could very well be even more pointed that the wealth you're actually collecting is ultimately God's. I mean, it's that this is basically just a restatement of what I just said, the idea I just said, but that, so the one who is generous to the poor is Yahweh. And so mm. it's like, all right, so you've gathered all this money, but Yahweh will take it from you. Like you don't get to keep it, you know? And so I think that that might be the, yeah, maybe the, the crux of it is that, okay, you amassed wealth, but you don't get to keep it, especially if it was ill-gotten, it will be removed from you. And I think even in the bigger bigger social context of, of uh, Israel is that they were supposed to be redistributing wealth every few generations. Again, you know, I, I don't know if that ever happened uh, completely systematically like the law calls for. It certainly happened in pockets, and we see that in some of the stories. So this is our third week on the book of Psalms, right? There are a lot of them. There are a lot of Psalms. And while I've been frustrated in some ways with the reading plan for splitting up like the prophets the way Mm -hmm. that they do, 
I think that the way they split up the psalms so that you're not reading 150 psalms straight through <laughs> is probably wise. Yeah. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. But as you're as you're reading through these, there's some some themes that come together, and and there's I think just some big questions for me as I was preparing for today, and I would just love to put some of them to you. So the first one I have is this: we have these psalms, they're they're prayer songs, right? One thing that I don't think is ever really just clearly articulated is why. What, what is accomplished by us praying or singing to God? Because it's not everybody's cup of tea. You know, on, in worship on Sunday morning, there are people who are stimulated by the sermon in a way they're not by the song or by, say, service or fellowship. There's some that are stimulated by service and fellowship and not by the others, and, and some that are really stimulated by song and but not everybody is really connecting to God easily this way. So the biggest book of the Bible is the song book. Like, why do we sing or pray or praise God? What's accomplished by it? Accomplished is an interesting word. I don't know if that, if I necessarily know how to answer that, what is accomplished by it. I think in its, in its I don't want to say purest form, I don't know, what the, but I don't know. I can't think of a better word in its purest form. I think that when we when we sing or worship the creator, that that is gratitude and celebration of what has already happened. Uh, and that's the sort of praise and worship that will endure forever is thanking God and, and celebrating what he is, what he has accomplished on our behalf. You know, so I suppose you could say it's like we are appropriating the story to ourselves, and you know, and that's certainly part of it. I mean, we're rehearsing the, the story, we're rehearsing the memories of others, maybe, but even ourselves. I mean, we can sing a song, you know, and we do this now with some of the hymns and things written 150 years ago by people who faced very different circumstances, and yet their lived experience isn't so different from ours, so we're able to, you know, kind of jump back and forth between their original context and ours, and that's all good. You know, I think, and, and we've discussed this a few times as we've as we've uh, journeyed in the Psalms over the last few weeks, is that especially especially thinking about what the Psalms themselves are. So it is a a book full of song poems that somebody else wrote that the people of God have kept and preserved in this in this record, and you know, so I think that there's a there's a way in which they teach us how to pray. Uh, just in terms of what is what is quote unquote allowed, you know, like they kind of pave the way forward for us to say, okay, so it's not just Thanksgiving and celebration that's in there, but there's also quite a bit of complaining and lament and cursing your enemies and being generally sad and asking God how long until you finally do the thing you've told us you're going to do. So that's all included in there as well. And so I think that when we participate in the in the singing, in the worship, that that we have the potential to open up some of those spaces in our hearts and our souls that we might want to hide, especially as American Christians. Now, most of our corporate worship does a very poor job of, of bringing us to those spaces. I know here at Calvary, we've tried over the last couple of years to be more intentional. Not all of the time, because that would be too big of a bummer, but every, every now and then to have lament, to have lamentation be part of our services. And... You know, and I think that for some people that probably just scrapes nails across their souls like, well, church is supposed to be uplifting and encouraging. And I, I don't disagree with that. But 
I think that if you are pretending that everything is good while you're slowly mis- dying and miserable inside, like then ultimately it is not encouraging or uplifting to pretend otherwise. You know, so it gives us, I think, the language, but then it also just gives us permission to voice these things in prayer to God. And so I think back to the accomplishing question, I think it can accomplish a certain amount of healing and integration merely in the act of acknowledging that we're feeling a certain way and giving voice to that. You know, I think there's a lot, uh, I mean, where neither of us are clinicians or anything, and you've studied more about, uh, you know, counseling and psychotherapy than I have, but I mean, the all signs indicate that the mere act of talking through something with someone is greatly restorative to somebody's uh, trauma and issues. Not that, you know, you have one good session with a counselor and you're healed forever, but, you know, just that, that just, yeah, just merely given voice and merely, merely, and I, I say merely because that's, I think, how we think of it sometimes, just merely saying it out loud or singing it out loud can be greatly restorative for us. And, and God ultimately wants that for us. And I think that in many churches, and ours especially, people could testify to just what healing and transformation has occurred through the music, right? Not through people. I mean, preaching is great. You know, preaching certainly helps people and all that. But like, I think that there is something deeply, deeply spiritual and human about making music that I think cuts through a lot of the barriers and defense mechanisms that are are the more rational parts of our minds may erect. And I think that gets to the why. Why do we sing at all? I mean, I think that it's because that's what we are. Like, we're the singing animals. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, it may trouble people to hear human beings referred to as animals. (laughs) I just mean as creatures. We are the singing creatures. And so I think it's a very distinctive it's just it's a it's a it is one of the key distinctives of what human beings are uh, compared to the rest of the creation, and the Bible tells us that, and the Bible tells us actually that a huge part of our priestly role is to give voice to the yeah. inarticulate praises Absolutely. of creation. Yeah, that the trees and the waters and the thunder storms and the butterflies can't sing in the way that we can, and yet we're able to to kind of articulate that on their behalf to mm-hmm. God. And so I think that might be another accomplished, something that's accomplished is that we're able to to give voice. And some of the Psalms we read next week in the high 90s, you know, are all about the trees clapping their hands and the seas roaring in joy, which, you know, you have to, in some ways, you have to have the eyes of faith, right? When the wind blows through the trees, that's just the wind blowing through the trees, you know, and again, the, the Bible's inviting us into an enchanted supernatural worldview. Well, let me say something else about that, that, that not everybody connects. One is that I think diversity, and not in like a stupid political way, but real diversity is near and dear to the creator's heart because he's done it everywhere. You know, like there isn't just one type of anything. You know, there's many types of all sorts of things. It seems to give him some kind of delight, you know, to make 150 different species of rat. I mean, I don't know how many species of rat there are, but there are a ton, right? Mm -hmm. A ton of different spiders, a ton of different sorts of trees, a ton of different sorts of clouds, you know, in different cultures and, and nationalities and languages spoken by people. And I think that even involves just the differences amongst people, right? That you have some people who are singers and some people who are workers and some people who are caregivers, and that's all good. 
And so that's just fine. It's all good. You know, Mm -hmm. if somebody doesn't connect, then you don't connect. I mean, that's, you don't have to feel bad necessarily. My second answer to that though would be to not, let me, let me see how to put this. In my personal pastoral experience, I would say that well over half the people who tell me, well, I don't really connect through the singing. There is something that has either happened to them or, or something in there that like, it's not just that that's just how they are personality wise. It's because once upon a time, somebody told them that their voice was terrible or once upon a time, music was somehow used to mistreat or, you know, like that there's something in there that's, that's kind of causing a blockage. Well, I think that a lot of the times in our culture, men are seen as we're supposed to be less emotional Mm -hmm. and singing is an act of expressing emotion. And so I think a lot. Yeah, that's true. It's vulnerable. It's a vulnerable thing. Most Mm -hmm. of the people that do not feel comfortable singing are men. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the time, if you're listening to this and you don't like singing and you're a man, I'm not saying this is necessarily you. But I think that there are some of the time where men do not sing or enjoy singing because they think that it is not a manly thing to right. do. Right, right. Which is uh, silly. Um, it's just that it is. So, and, I, and, and and no one can know this, right? And I'm not saying it in judgment of anyone of like, you know, I, you would like singing if you tried harder. Like, that's not what I'm trying to say. But just that that I think that, again, going back to just the, the power that, that music and singing can have for us. You know, that it is, it's worth, I guess, just continuing to try and explore that prayerfully with the Lord, with people you trust, you know, and again, I think there are some people legitimately who just do not connect through it all good. Like I'm not, you know, and it's not like there's like a deadline for anybody, you know, it's like, if you don't, if you don't get to like singing before the day, (laughs) the day of the Lord, (laughs) you know, I don't, that's not it either, you know, but I guess just that the. That it's, I guess maybe the how I would put it is it's a blessing, but it's a blessing that you have to accept. And as much as we're able to kind of work through the reasons that we have, we have kind of been shut down maybe to musical worship as we're able, you know, and again, I, I, I don't say, yeah, hopefully that's evident. I'm not, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad or anything like that, but just that, yeah, just don't, don't. Don't let it be a foregone conclusion. Just like, oh yeah, I'm just not a very musical person. It's like, up, 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 up. <laughs> Are you sure? Um, and you know, and I, you know, I would even say like, I can. I'm thinking of people right now in our church who don't aren't necessarily singers, but they love listening to other people sing. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. You know, and it's like, and again, I think that goes back to the diversity. We're not all getting up. I mean, I can sing, but I'm not gonna get up and sing in front of the church. <laughs> Really? At least not anytime soon. I do enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I've thought about it. Well, and like when Trudy and I would go visiting and still sometimes when we're able, I mean, we sing for the folks we go visiting to and everything. And so it's like, I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I get that. of like, okay, I, I, I could sing. I'm not saying I have a great voice, but like, I, I, I enjoy singing and I can you know, but that's not something I'm in a super duper hurry to do, you know, in front of a bunch of other people or even, yeah, people who really connect with the Lord by listening to the rest of us sing, even if they're not saying, you know, like that's all good too. You know, I think that that's all, yeah, it's all, it's all good. And, and I don't think God is, yeah, there's no judgment um, for those of us who, like I said, for different reasons, maybe have, have kind of been shut down, you know, towards musical worship. And I, and I, I would hope that the Psalms can help 
with that, but the Psalms can be a, a way for the Holy Spirit to work, you know, because we don't know their music and they don't rhyme in English. So, I mean, they're, they are poems, they are songs, but, you, you know, even just to pray them, you know, I think, uh, can be, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, you know, it's, it's just a very powerful thing that they're not meant to be merely read, you know, like, I don't know, other books. I mean, none of the books of the Bible are meant merely to be read by a single person, but you know what I mean? Like they really are meant to be, to be spoken, to be, to be given voice. One of the things that we see a lot of times in evangelical churches is that Psalms is a book, if it's so important, if it has so much space, it's odd that in a lot of churches it's neglected. It's not a frequent part of preaching or teaching. Um, a lot of people, I think, are surprised when they find those little pocket Bibles and it has the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs or just Psalms. But why do you think, given its prominence in Scripture, everything you just said about the importance of it, why do you think it's so easy for either individuals or churches sometimes to neglect this book of the Bible? Well, I think part of it, like I said, has to do with that our, our kind of cultural bandwidth for what prayer and worship is, is very narrow and compared to the Psalms. And so we're all about the upbeat, you can do it, you know, encouragement part, which is part of it, but that's like two colors of a big rainbow, you know, that we're <laughs> ignoring or that we're closing our eyes to. So I think that's part of it. That just a lot of the Psalms we don't know what to do with. Um, we wouldn't know how to use them, you know, capably in a, in a worship service. You know, I think they don't, and the, I guess maybe the other thing I would say about that is, especially with preaching, is that they do not lend themselves to the style of preaching that we feel like is is most important um, in terms of the kind of exegetical, rationalistic, like, and here's what we're supposed to believe based on these lines, because they're poetry and they're they're not arranged in any sort of like systematic order, like you have to impose that upon them. And I'm not saying that's bad to do, just that it is something you have to do to them. They're not doing that for you. So there are several themes uh, that run just through the book of Psalms, and more than we could talk about today. But one that recurred, that occurred several times in our reading for this week and happens dozens of times in the book of Psalms is a question we see it. We see it first, I feel like, in our readings today, in Psalm 10, and Psalm 10 starts, Psalm 10 starts with the question, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I mean, literally dozens of times in scripture, a psalmist asks a question like this one, why are you far from me? And I'm not asking so much why the psalmists are asking that question. I guess I'm asking you, why does it seem like God is far away? I mean, that's part of the, the Christian experience is oftentimes God feels far away. Why is that? What's happening there? Is he far away? Is something else going on? I told you I had big questions for you this week. You know, I think that the, the reality of, quote unquote, where God is probably stays the same. And it's, a, it's just a big perception game on our end of whether we can perceive that or not. You know, you can have two people who go through a very terrible experience. One of them reports feeling a very powerful sense of God's presence, and the other one does not. Well, what's happening there? Does God like the one person more than the other? I don't think so. Is he actually closer to the one than the other? No, I don't think that's how it works either. And so, 
I think we also want to be careful to say things like, well, the one who really felt God's presence must have prayed more or the other one was sinning somehow or because we just don't know. We don't know any of that. I think in some ways as well, we are limited to our own experience of like, you know, <laughs> I face this and then God felt far away or, or whatever else. And I, I think that we're not, those are not opportunities for us to speak into each other's lives, be like, well, actually you're wrong. And he was very close. Like, I think that's what we want to do to help them feel better and probably to make ourselves feel better. Kind of like what we talked about in Job. Like, I don't think it's our job to, to try and define those things for other people or or tell them that their felt experience is wrong and your felt experience i think by definition can't be wrong it's just what you're experiencing <laughs> it may not reflect reality right but but it, no one can argue you know no one feeling. no one can argue you into you know reflecting reality um you know and so i think that in terms of you know finding this in the Psalms, I think that hopefully it would it would be heartening for us to know that we're not alone in having these experiences of feeling that God is far away, that people of faith throughout history have had these experiences. Christ Himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, on the cross, and so even Jesus was not exempt from these feelings of of God being far away. You know, and think about that. I don't know how the theological math works out, you know, because Jesus is God. But uh, and so, yeah, I think I think I would say that we don't know. And it just is what it is. Sometimes he does feel like he's far away. Uh, And again, I think the Psalms give us the language and the latitude to acknowledge that and to articulate the really the grief of that. And I mean, again, kind of going back to Job, we talked a lot about that, too, that so much of so much of Job's speeches you know, his friends are trying to explain, whereas Job is just lamenting, like he's not trying to explain or rationalize what's happening to him. And I think that there's something very significant and, and powerful about that. Again, going back to our previous discussion just now about why the wisdom, quote unquote, wisdom books are in the order they're in. I mean, I think that Job definitely sets us up to understand, you know, or, or to be able to receive some of these Psalms, I think, in the in the proper way, you know, that prayer and it's not that it's not that it's bad to ask for an explanation, but you know you read these psalms and they don't get them. They don't get an explanation, um, and I don't know if that means that there isn't one, or that we can't understand it, even if he told us, or if he has told us and we just don't listen, or you know, like I, I mean, take your pick, any and all of it. You know, you'll hear sometimes uh, kind of more woohoo Christians or even like atheists talk about like that there's almost, there is like a little tiny thread of atheism at the center of Christianity. And what I mean by that, (laughs) hold on. (laughs) Uh Atheism isn't quite the right term. Let's say God forsakenness. There is a certain, there is a little bit of a thread of that, you know, and you and not threat a thread of that, you know, in the middle of Christianity. And I, like I said, I referenced Christ's crucifixion a few seconds ago. And I think that that is the, the linchpin of like, okay, so God himself was somehow abandoned or felt abandoned or felt distant from God. It's like, all right, <laughs> then we have no idea what you, kind of a universe we're in or what we're talking about. <laughs> Except to say that the experience is real and the experience is legitimate and that if it happened to Jesus, it will happen to you, you know, and, and that we shouldn't be shocked because it's right there in the script. Like, this is what it means to lead, you know, a Christ-like life. 
is to occasionally feel abandoned by God, potentially on the worst day of your life, which is a very bracing thought to consider. Um, but that to even so to even use a psalm like Psalm 10, it's like, all right, so I feel abandoned by God and I feel like no one is listening while I'm praying, but I'm praying using a poem written by someone who was inspired by God. And so it's this weird, I feel like faith in some, sometimes can just be this strange, like that, that you don't, in the moment, you don't believe it. And yet you're doing the thing mm-hmm. that only believers would do, you know, so it's like, so, and, I, and, and we've referenced this before. There's far more to faith than just the thoughts we have yes. in our brains and whether, you yeah. know, we have the right thoughts or not. And I think that this actually is a perfect example of this, that, you know, somebody cannot believe the truth in their heads and yet still emotionally and even physically, you know, come before God in prayer again, using a poem written under the inspiration (laughs) of that same God to talk to a God. They're not convinced is listening to them (laughs) (laughs) and they'd be in good company because they do this constantly, you know, throughout the witness of scripture. Martin Luther really struggled with this and he, he talked quite a bit about it. And as there often is, there's a really good German word that he came up with. And so the idea that he came to eventually was in those times when God feels furthest away, he's actually nearest. And the, the, and again, we're not saying that God actually moves position, but what I think Luther meant by that was that the opportunity for retrospectively seeing God at work in and around and through you is richest uh, when you look back on those times when he feels furthest away. And the word he had for that, good German word, is anfechtungen. And I don't know German. I don't know what the pieces of that mean. But it's 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 this experience that he was very familiar with that so many have been exper- have experienced um, of God feeling far away. The dark night of the soul is a common Christian idea for what what it's like when you are you are doing what you are supposed to do, and yet God feels very far away. So another theme that runs through through Proverbs, another theme that runs through Psalms, sometimes aimed at God's people and sometimes aimed at his enemies, is God's wrath. I mean, it's, it's, it's in probably a third of the Psalms, maybe more, speak about the wrath of God. Now, we've talked a little bit about that here, but it's been months, I think, since we've really dug into it. And I guess I'm just curious, I'd love to hear you speak on what is this thing, this wrath, that sometimes is poured out on God's people? Sometimes it's poured out on those that are not his people. Sometimes it's a, a thing that seems to, as we read the story of scripture, turn away when repentance happens. And sometimes we read in the Psalms that despite repenting, God's wrath still comes. What is What do we mean by God's wrath? So in Psalm 44, verses 9 and following, we hear this. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. 
but you crushed us and made us haunt for a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Now, the word wrath doesn't appear in these verses, but we are seeing, I think, the result of that wrath. I actually don't know. I think I want to push back on that. Sure. Because I would say that wrath in the Psalms... In the, in the prophets especially, like it is a, it is God's, that is God's response to them breaking the covenant and him keeping the covenant. That's wrath. Whereas what Psalm 44 is describing is that the people have remained faithful and yet Yahweh is off stage. And so I think that there's, that, that may be a distinction without whatever the phrase is. A, a distinction you know, without a difference? Yeah, a distinction without a difference, but I just, it it seems to me that what they, that they're not saying, you know, you have come upon us in covenant wrath, even though we've done nothing wrong. They're saying, we've done nothing wrong, and you are not keeping the covenant at all. Like, you're not there. And so this seems to be more of a, a kind of absence of God rather than God present in wrath and judgment does that make sense what i'm trying to say well it i I hear what you're trying to say can i push back on that well so i guess let me yes you may but just let me so i think to going back to your original question what is god's wrath i mean i think that it is his his proper and righteous his legal recourse for when they are unfaithful to the covenant and then he can respond in those ways and i think that's what we're set up to see in deuteronomy you know that then kind of the rest of the, the story follows the script of like the, that what God's wrath, that it's not purely a punishment. It is a punishment with the intent of restoring fidelity on, on behalf of the other, the other party. Um, but it's within God's legal quote unquote legal right to do as a, as a covenant partner. And the, the, like there are no, that, that's not a hidden thing. Like the Israelites shouldn't be surprised when God's wrath comes upon them for their unfaithfulness because they were told that that's what's going to happen. Like that's the, that's where, from where the prophets are prophesying about the coming of, of judgment and wrath and punishment is based on the terms of the covenant. Um, whereas I think that Psalm 44 is, yeah, I think it's kind of pressing kind of a different issue, a different question the result may be the same military defeat and, and oppression and things like that, but that, yeah, that it, it's sort of a different, yeah, I'll just, I'm sure. just going to start repeating myself. The Psalm 44 is kind of pressing a different question. Well, then you, what you said is that wrath is covenantal, uh. right? But if we go to Psalm two, for example, the talking about the Kings of the earth rising up the other nations of the world. Mm-hmm. And then it says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, Mm -hmm. saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So wrath can't only be covenantal. What is God's wrath outside of the covenant? Oh, I mean, I think that's still covenant wrath because everyone on the planet is caught up in what's happening between him and Abraham and the people. So I think even though he's not directly in covenant with these other nations, the fact that they're threatening his covenant people now means that they're caught up in this drama. 
Are you saying that those in the ancient world not threatening God's people were not subject to wrath? Um, yeah, I think that's what I would say. Interesting. Okay. How does that apply to today? Well, you know, I think that now the human species is caught up in the drama of what happened with Jesus, uh, upon whom God's wrath was poured out on behalf of all humankind. And so I think that we can, different parts of the church have, have drawn different conclusions about that, you know, and what that means. Uh, but I think that that we could at least say that whatever whatever wrath could look like, God's wrath could look like specifically, that Jesus, that for anyone on earth, Jesus can be the terminus of God's wrath if they, if based, you know, if that person accepts that in faith, if those people accept that in faith. It's like no one is exempt in the same way that nobody would be, would have been really exempt from wrath in the old covenant, you know, but it, it, it all of that is still in relation to God's chosen people, which come to a individual point in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, so I think it's, uh, well, this probably is going to get us too far afield, but like, you know, the Paul talks about how we wouldn't really know what sin was apart from the covenant. And so it's like, if we don't know what sin is, if there, if in some ways Paul's saying that sin doesn't, well, Paul's not saying that sin doesn't exist, but that, well, I don't know, that might be what he's saying in some of those passages, but we'll get there in a while. <laughs> but just that somehow the covenant with, with, with Abraham and then the covenant with the people is focusing or making blatant god's judgment and wrath against sin and death and so the peoples of the earth around them can either be aligned with those forces of sin and death like the parties that psalm 2 is referencing and so therefore be recipients of god's wrath or they can be aligned with the family of abraham and be recipients of god's blessing which is what yahweh ultimately wants that's why he called abraham in the first place is to be a fountain of blessing for all the nations (laughs) well thank you pastor well because because I think that, and I'm not saying you were doing this, but just that part of why I wanted like a specific, some verses to kind of, to play off of and look at is I think that we can, that the Bible does, that the Bible teaches its truths about the universe and about God, and that it is permissible to take those things and spool them up into what we call like doctrines. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. But I think that sometimes we can... Once those, if those, and again, I'm not saying you're doing this, but I think that the, the, yeah, that when those doctrines become unattached from the original, like, scripture context that gave birth to them, then they can kind of start to get a little screwy. And I think that divine wrath is one of those that can go real screwy real fast. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly because the leaders of God's people, it's a very easy nuclear option to choose when you're having to deal with people that you don't like or who are making choices <laughs> that upset you mm-hmm. or when you've landed in their country and really want to rip all the ore out of the ground and chop all their forests down but they're refusing to let you do that and so we go okay well do we have some wrath to tell you about <laughs> <laughs> well and so if we can just end by talking a little bit more about psalm 44 specifically you know that why i would say i don't know if that's necessarily a wrath passage is well maybe it is and it isn't so it's like so the prayer is being written because they have suffered some terrible defeat or series of defeats and it appears that Yahweh is not holding up his end of the bargain you know and so 
and that's kind of related to what we were just talking about with Psalm 10 and, and feeling like feeling God's absence, but on a national scale, you know? And so I think it's, and we don't get an answer. There's no response from Psalm 44. It just, it's, it just kind of floats off into the air and, you know, who knows? But again, I think it gives us permission and language to, to form around those sorts of experiences that, that, I mean, we know God cannot forsake his own covenant, right? And so what Psalm 44 is accusing him of isn't what's happening, which means they're wrong about something, like they've missed a step in their thinking, you know, whoever's writing this psalm has missed missed something. And so I think... Can they be wrong about what they're feeling? <laughs> no, <laughs> which is why it's in the Bible. <laughs> but again, I think that we read that and then it gives us an opportunity, it gives us an opportunity to sit back relax and reflect <laughs> on well why are we experiencing what we're mm-hmm. experiencing is there a way and I, what i'm not saying is that every time we feel god ab- god's absence it means you secretly did something wrong nope not what i'm saying <laughs> but sometimes mm-hmm. certainly sure it would be foolish to think that you're always without sin and always the victim you know of of situations you're not uh and so yeah i think it 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 certainly again i think it it invites us into a way of, of speaking about these experiences and knowing that we can bring those things to God. But then I think that folds back on to us to say, okay, and now let's reflect more deeply about why, you know, this is happening and why we're feeling this way um, and whether God is actually absent or not. So in the, in the Psalms, there's so much talk about wisdom and foolishness calls to um, adhere to commit to um, the word of the Lord and his statutes and laws there's so much about how to live rightly and how not to live wrongly. Why don't we consider the Psalms wisdom literature? Because it seems like they share a and lot of attributes. when you say we, you mean like the scholars? <laughs> well, when we talked about earlier today, when you asked me about the wisdom books and why they, what kind of ordering there were, I don't think you had Psalms in mind. Oh, I did. Oh, I did too, but I didn't think you did, so I didn't <laughs> include it. But well, you talked about Psalms in your answer. I talked about Psalms after I was done talking about the wisdom literature oh, and then paired it with Job. That's funny. But No, I was I was I was including Psalms in that. But. Okay. Well the scholars usually don't refer to <laughs> Psalms as wisdom well, literature. Because the scholars scholars are just silly billies, you know. So we agree the Psalms should be wisdom literature. <laughs> considered wisdom. Well literature. it's all wisdom literature. Come on. <laughs> Come on now. I Oh, let me let me let me put let me put it this way. Let me take what you said and turn it around and throw it back at you. <laughs> I'm ready. No, no, no. So like, okay, so like the the tripartite. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> so the the kind of uh, three part division that Jesus himself uses is the the song, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. You know when he references the Old Testament, and the Gospels. And that, I think, commends itself in some ways to rethinking about what the other books that we involve in the wisdom literature are sort of in orbit around the Psalms rather than saying that the Psalms are a part of wisdom literature. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I think that, you know, Job, what we consider, again, first century Jews, they had a slightly different list of what they would have included in the, the Psalms, quote unquote, or the, the writings, you know, is kind of the other major term that they used, like Ruth and Daniel, you know, some of the other things that we, we put in other boxes, and that's all fine. But just think about the Christian the Christian set, the Christian ordering, you know, Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, I think are 
also poems. Um, they're poetic in the same way that the Psalms are. And I think in, in some ways can almost be like commentary on the Psalms. And I don't mean that like formally, like they're not, like they didn't sit down to write a commentary on the Psalms and out came Job. But just that in the grand scheme of things, you know, in all the ways we've already touched on, you know, you can you can find the same themes that Psalms highlight and that bring voice or give voice to and, and, and provide language for developed or or uh, riffed off of or disagreed with in the other wisdom literature. You know, so I think that, yeah, I think that maybe that's what I would say is that that rather, you know, and again, I don't think we're not like pitting the different books of the Bible against each other. But if Psalms is the kind of defining category, definer, you know, that these other books then fall under, I, I think that that can be very helpful uh, and very illuminating to think about, you know, that Jesus quotes the Psalms constantly. He, to my knowledge, never quotes from the wisdom books directly. Am I right about that? I and mean, that's, that's, that's an off the top of my head comment. Jesus himself, the New Testament does in different oh, places. yes, of course. But as far as I can think of, Jesus himself does not quote... Uh, Job's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. His life is obviously reflected in those books over and over again, but it's the Psalms that he quotes. Um, it's, it's, it's Psalms that are on his lips as he dies. And so I think that that has a lot to tell us about, again, what biblical wisdom is for, right? Because you can read Proverbs alone and kind of come away with like, you know, okay, so biblical wisdom is about my life and me succeeding in the things that I want to do, <laughs> you know, and, and that that's not the, what's central to it, is that what's central to it is is living out the will of God as a part of God's people. That's what we see in the Psalms, and so I think that helps us then understand what we're reading in Job and Proverbs and the rest of them, you know, as a way of, of saying that the relationship, this covenant relationship between the people and Yahweh is what is central for us, of course, that is now in Jesus in a way that it wasn't for, for the Old Testament folks originally, um, and that that helps us understand what our wisdom is for. You know, again, Paul calls Jesus the wisdom of God, and so then we read Jesus back into, you know, all these other these other wisdom books, um, that, that the wisdom, that biblical wisdom and following Jesus are the same thing. Those are two two different languages about the same reality. And I think that the Psalms is the bridge between those two things of like, okay, that's, that's how we can understand all of this, you know, some random proverb about not, uh, whatever, you know, leaving your shoes out in the rain. I mean, there isn't a proverb about that, but just whatever, you know, and it's like, well, that hasn't, what does that have to do with the drama of Christianity? And it's like, well, it, once we understand that those things are all in service to, they're all tiny parables about, they're all little pictures of following Jesus faithfully in the specifics of our lives. I think that that just helps all of it, I think, make sense and hang together uh, more faithfully. All right, so Psalm 4610 is a well-known verse. And it is, he says, Be still and know that I am God. Mm -hmm. And this is a just a, a very commonly used verse. It's a verse that brings a lot of people comfort. Yes. It's very good on magnets and it's, it's posters. Great. It's a good life verse for a lot of people. I would love for you to speak to what's, what's this mean? What does it mean to be still and know that I'm God? So Psalm 46 is very similar in spirit to Psalm 2 in terms of being addressed to the nations and their warfare around Israel. And so the, the actual parties being commanded to be still in verse 10 are 
the Gentile nations wanting to overrun and, and conquer the peoples. Luckily enough, most of us are actually Gentiles, so it, it makes sense for us to sit down, shut up, and let God be God. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way it is. I, you know, I think this is a great, great example, and we've talked about this several times, about the difference between, mm, I guess, original meaning and yeah. and daily or on-the-ground interpretation. So, let's see, who wrote Psalm 10? Oh, Sons of Korah. So the sons of Korah. You mean 46? Also sons of Korah. I'm sorry. Yes, 46. Yeah, yeah. It's verse 10, Psalm 46. You know, so their original intent was to say to the nations to be still, you know, Mm -hmm. and know that, that Yahweh is God. A modern Christian can read that and come away with the thought of like, okay, so I can be calm. I can be at rest because God is in control and I'm not. That is not what the sons of Korah originally meant by the psalm, but that is true. And it's a legitimate way, I think, to, to take this and, and apply it into our lives. You know, but but again, the important part is then not trying to push that back onto originally yes. what the psalm meant because it's just it just didn't mean that. Um, and that there are other scriptures that speak to that same idea. You know, Moses telling the Israelites to be still at the shore of the Red Sea, you know, and wait, be still, be quiet, wait for Yahweh's deliverance. Or Isaiah saying that in, in uh, quiet and rest will be your salvation. So, I mean, over and over again, it's the same idea being told. So it's a good biblical idea. Psalm 46.10 wasn't originally telling us that. <laughs> is it okay for me to apply it that is to myself? Okay. I think it is okay. And actually, I mean, the church has been using this verse as a prayerful verse for most of its existence, as, a, as an opportunity to look at and, and be reminded of the importance of God not needing us, mm-hmm. us being able to trust in him, to let go of things that are not within our power and turn them over to him. Which, I mean, none of that is foreign to the original context. You know, I mean, I think even in, in our day and age today of like, so much on the international stage can cause us anxiety and worry, things we are powerless to do anything about anyway, you know, and just know, okay, God is God, he will be exalted, he has a plan, and we can we can be at rest in the midst of that, we can be still and be quiet and trust him. Sure, I mean, I think that's all, that's all in there, um, but just that we shouldn't neglect the fact that, yeah, originally this was... This was addressed to kind of warring Gentile armies, not individual believers. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. I was holding that in for a minute. (laughs) Did you get a little fly up in there? What happened? I think a little powder that didn't quite get the... (laughs) And so for the last like 15 seconds, I was like, dude, land the plane. I just wanted you to know what it feels like. Because I could tell. I could tell you were wanting something to happen. I was like, that's too bad.